rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next on Drama on One, Creatives in Conversation. In 2014, Poetry Ireland and the Peacock Theatre hosted a very special event, Ivan Boland in conversation with Paula Meehan. This was to celebrate Ivan's 70th birthday and to launch the book Ivan Boland, A Poet's Dublin. The book brings together many of Ivan's best-known poems with her own striking photographs of her native city. It's edited by Jody Allen Randolph and Paula Meehan. And it also includes Jody's introduction and a conversation between Ivan and Paula in which the two poets reflect on their shared city and the central role it has played in their lives and in their work. These themes were further explored in the event itself. And three years after Ivan's death, the conversation serves as a further testament to her warm and inspiring influence. Here's an excerpt from the recording. I just welcome Ivan. It's great to have you here. Great to have you home. Ivan has been coming and going to the city now for many years and from her job in Stanford in California. And I think this journey across the Atlantic has been one of the most auspicious. Not only is she flying home into her 70th birthday year, which is a big event in anyone's life, not only is she celebrating a new selected poems from Carcanet, but she's celebrating the birth of her first grandchild, Ella Ashley. Ella Ashling Barry, uh, whose mother is in the audience tonight, and it's her first separation from the baby. So we understand if if Ivan, because she's named for her mother, has to rush off in the middle of things, we will understand. But you're all very welcome, friends, family, readers and fans of Just before I read, can I read Night Feed? I haven't read Night Feed out at all since Ella has been born. (laughs) But since, you know, I have caught her mother in one tranquil moment so that I can read it, I certainly meant to read it, not for Ella so much as for her mother. Anyway, Night Feed. This is dawn. Believe me, this is your seasoned little daughter. The moment daisies open, the hour mercurial rainwater makes a mirror for sparrows. It's time we drowned our sorrows. I tiptoe in, I lift you up, wriggling in your rosy zipped sleeper. Yes, this is the hour for the early bird and me, when finder is keeper. I crook the bottle, how you suckle. This is the best I can be. Housewife to this nursery where you hold on, dear life. A silt of milk, the last suck, and now your eyes are open, birth-colored and offended. Earth wakes you go back to sleep. The feed is ended. Worms turn, stars go in. Even the moon is losing face. Poplars stilt for dawn and we begin the long fall from grace. I tuck you in. Beautiful. You know, I'm so delighted and uh, I'm delighted that Ella's wonderful mother's here as well. As I said, we'll understand if not for too long. But I do have some thanks to make. So I'm going to begin this evening by doing something Paula's not going to like at all, so let me tell you what it is. I I couldn't have persuaded her to do this, but Paula's city... uh, (laughs) I couldn't have... 
tallest city of Dublin isn't the same city as the one that goes into this book, which was the one that accumulated in poems I wrote over years. But Paula's city of Dublin has meant a huge amount to me over the years, precisely because it's inhabited. In a way, mine never was. You know, mine was somewhat of a city of shadows and ghosts and colony. And, you know, when you come back to a city, I came back at 14. And, you know, I was stranded. I mean, a lot of 14-year-olds will be anyway. But I knew I had missed a very significant part of my childhood in Ireland. I really left at six. I knew I'd never have a secret language that people have of belonging in a city. And the way that Paula's city was inhabited and had that language meant an enormous amount to me. And over the years, much, much more than she would know, I would take out poems that I really loved that she had written that spoke of that city that was my own. So I'm going to begin tonight, and I have hidden it under my book, Paula's book. <laughs> and it is an absolutely excellent book. It's called Mysteries of the Home, and I have it beside me. And the, the poem that I just love and read so often and have taught and have read again is called My Father Perceived as a Vision of St. Francis. Just an iconic poem, but a poem that, you know, even for its iconic public presence, also has a deeply private presence, which is something that a city poem doesn't always have. And to me, it brings back that city I didn't live in, and so here it is. I didn't tell Paul I was going to do this because I wasn't going to have the argument, so here we are. Um, uh, my father perceived as a vision of St. Francis, and it's dedicated to the wonderful Brenda Canelli. It was the piebald horse in next door's garden frightened me out of a dream with her dawn whinny. I was back in the box room of the house, my brother's room now, full of ties and sweaters and secrets, bottles chinked on the doorstep, the first bus pulled up to the stop. The rest of the house slept except for my father. I heard him rake the ash from the grate, plug in the kettle, hum a snatch of a tune. Then he unlocked the back door and stepped out into the garden. Autumn was nearly done. The first frost whitened the slates of the estate. He was older than I had reckoned, his hair completely silver. And for the first time, I saw the stoop of his shoulder, saw that his leg was stiff. What's he at so early and still stars in the west? They came then, birds of every size, shape, color. They came from the hedges and shrubs, from eaves and garden sheds, from the industrial estate, outlying fields, from Double Cross. They came and the ditches of the North Road. The garden was a pandemonium when my father threw up his hands and tossed the crumbs to the air. The sun cleared O'Reilly's chimney and he was suddenly radiant, a perfect vision of St. Francis made whole, made young again in a fingerless garden. So really in the conversation we had, these two senses of different cities sort of kept in a way both colliding and illuminating something. And, you know, I think it is important that the spaces of a city find 
their way into language. I think it matters. I think that it's the way not only we inhabit the city, but the city inhabits something in memory. And, you know, when I think of the cities that came to us in Irish literature, that came in O'Casey, that came when, you know, Stephen Dedalus is walking in the portrait of the artist, that came in Kavanagh's Canal poems, you know, all of those ways that a city goes into language makes that city much more deeply humane. And I think it's what we look for. Yeah. I was always struck when I read your poems of the city, and to me, you were the poet that articulated the city to me in a way that I could see the people in it, you know, I could reflect my own experience into your experience of the city, even though I was very aware that it was a totally different city, that it came from a different class, an area to my young eyes of privilege. I remember being in an apartment, a flat, as we would have called it in those days, with some friends. And I think it was around the time the anti-nuclear movement when we were campaigning against nuclear energy. Certainly I was with activists and there was a lot of discussion about the role of women and what we had to do. And you came on the radio on RTE and I had been reading you, beginning to read you, but this was the first time I actually heard your voice and the beautiful accent and the beautiful cadences of the lines. And someone said to me, don't listen to that. Can you not hear our accent? <laughs> and it was the first time I realised that an accent wasn't the politics. It was the first time I realised a kind of a sisterhood beyond class divisions and a sisterhood in poetry. Because if poetry does anything, it defeats sectarianism. It really reminds us, I believe, that it's the human voice and we speak to each other as humans in a kind of a, on a level ground. You've a lovely um, remark in the essay Outside History from the collection Object Lessons, one of your prose collections. You say, if a poet does not tell the truth about time, his or her work will not survive it Past or present, there is a human dimension to time, human voices within it and human griefs ordained by it. Our present will become the past of other men and women. We depend on them to remember it with the complexity with which it was suffered, as others once depended on us. I remember once a teacher, a great teacher I had of English history, and classical civilization, Miss Maguire, saying to me that with education comes responsibility. And I mean, I resisted that idea. Um, but it seemed to me that when I began to read your poetry, that that came back to me in a new kind of form, you know, a kind of an onus, not felt as a burden, but as a challenge to actually look through the layers of the other writers who had written this, the city of my own imagination into being, like the writers you mentioned, and especially Joyce and Beckett, who wrote a particularly intellectualised city, it felt to me, to actually see through that to the reality of my own experience and to honour it and bring it into the work. Yeah. You know... It's interesting that you say Beckett and Joyce wrote an intellectualized city. It's, it's just an interesting word. You know, there's, there's a really lovely short story by Beckett 
called Dante and the Lobster, who is trying to make his lunchtime sandwich out of gorgonzola, and, and he's terrified that anybody's going to interrupt him, you know. And it's, it's a near enough, I think, self-portrait. But it isn't so much the intellectual city or the not city. I think what every writer feels or fears is that phrase from Adrienne Rich's poem, you know, a book of myths in which our names do not appear. And I certainly felt as a young woman, and I mean, you bring this up very interestingly, and I'm not sure it's always a source of agreement between us, but it's a very interesting conversation. I certainly was worried that my name couldn't appear because I, I didn't have the keys to the city that people had who had always lived here. And, you know, when your friend said, don't listen to that accent, your friend really was partly right, you know, because part of my accent had come from these years in London, so that to myself, I never can say the word poetry right. It never, it is always the British pronunciation of poetry. So these indelible things get laid down in you. Senses of outsiderism, senses of not belonging, and you always worry as a young writer that you're in a place where you will never be able to write your name. And to me, that was especially true when I looked at the city of Dublin. I felt, we all would have felt uh, when we were young, that it has been a particularly inscribed city. I mean, it's been written by these great writers who, who wrote about it and wrote about its political moments and its pastoral moments. But I think what you and I talk about at the back of this book is that it matters to write your name there. It does matter. Other people are going to come along and want to add their names. And the more names that are added, the better. Yes. Given that you've just become a grandmother, could I ask you now to read a poem? That it's a very fleeting moment in your poetry. Uh, it reminds me very much of the kind of poem that's written on the edge of the book by the scribes. It's a poem called This Moment. Yes. But yeah. it will, I think, be a blessing for the new baby. But also these fleeting moments that you began to inscribe, not just into your own book of life, but into the literary history of the city, I think are so valuable. I have it here open in front of me. I will, of course, read uh, this moment in a second. But, you know, that was something I think we talked about. You know, how this written at the edges of the city. When I remember our kids were born, I remember I would get up in the night, winter, the night feeds, and I would see these other lights on in all the windows and houses and know that other people were doing that. And, you know, it, it seemed to me that wasn't a story that had been written so often into the city. And yet there it was every single night, those lights going on, those lives beginning. And so making the decision, as you say, to have enough permission to write what you're actually living at the moment, not what somebody else has lived and not what people think you should be living. That, to me, was an important moment. This is called this moment. It's a little bit later. I used to go out um, in the evening time, just at twilight, especially in the summer. I know so many people do it to try to get a child to come in, probably didn't want to come in. And, um, you know, eventually, the child would turn around and run towards you. And it was such, you know, such a quick but transformative moment. And that really 
was the idea of this twilight coming in and this child coming back to you, this moment. A neighborhood at dusk. Things are getting ready to happen out of sight. Stars and moths and rinds slanting around fruit, but not yet. One tree is black. One window is yellow as butter. A woman leans down to catch a child who has run into her arms this moment. Stars rise, moths flutter, apples sweeten in the dark. I know over the years so many women have remarked to me, women who are also poets, have remarked to me how those poems of the early years out in Dundrum, of raising a family, of having young babies around you, how much they, and I quote directly from one young woman, saved their lives. Well, I'm honoured that, that people found it. You know, you and I, I think, are both influenced by our relations with our mothers. And, you know, you have a really stunning poem, so you should read that. Only, only. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is. This is a poem that had a great influence on me. And, and once again, a poem that, uh, you know, it probably was something that Paula showed me in that. You know, my own mother was a great hero of mine. That, that, that I think, was privileged. My mother was a painter. She was very encouraging to me. And, you know, then one day I opened, I, I'm pretty sure The Man That Was Marked By Winter, was yes. it? Yeah, it was The Man That Was Marked By Winter. Wonderful volume of, of Paula's. And there was this poem, and it was an unswerving, harsh truth in this beautiful, wrenching poem. And I, that, that had a great influence on me. I mean, it, it seemed to me to speak, you know, that really put the city through the, the life of a person. So, you'll hear it. Okay, you're a devil. <laughs> um, yes, well, I know, Ivan, you have given us some of the first images of the mother as artist in the tradition, where Frances Kelly, your mother, is depicted in beautiful poems like The Last Discipline, where she looks in a mirror at the painting she's just finished to see if it's finished, to get that critical distance. Um, my own mother was an artist in a different way. She was a handy woman, and her art was really determined by necessity, by the need to clothe us. But it was there in those kind of typically female of the time, those skills of knitting, sewing, embroidery, downsizing, upsizing other people's clothes to yeah. fit us, that she really came into her own. And I knew my mother as the young woman the other end of the family, like Antoinette, my sister, who's a wonderful community-based artist in Finglas, who did the image of the Anna Livia, she wouldn't have known her. She was just four when my mother died. But I remember my mother, young and beautiful. She was dead by 42, worn, absolutely worn out by the drudgery of her life, ill health, and by a massive frustration. She was an incredibly bright woman. She was brilliant, and yet there was nowhere, I believe, in the culture for her to really 
put that energy, if she had even lived maybe another decade, things began to open out. There was second chance education. You know yourself from the years doing workshops around the country in remote places, that women were coming together and setting their own agendas for their own education. I mean, there were projects here in the city, the Clear Project, the Sale Project, projects that were saving lives and giving women that just that chink to come through into their own powers. So the pattern. Little has come down to me of hers, a sewing machine, a wedding band, a clutch of photos, the sting of her hand across my face in one of our wars when we had grown bitter and apart. Some say that's the fate of the eldest daughter. I wish now she'd lasted till after I'd grown up. We might have made a new start as women without tags like mother, wife, sister, daughter, taken our chances from there. At 42, she headed for God knows where. I've never gone back to visit her grave. First she'd scrubbed the floor with sunlight soap and arm reach at a time when her knees grew sore. She'd break for a cup of tea, then start again at the door with lavender polish. The smell would percolate back through the flat to us, her brood vanished to the bedroom. And as she buffed the wax to a high shine, did she catch her own face coming clear? Did she net a glimmer of her true self? Did her mirror tell her what mine tells me? I have her shrug and go on, knowing history has brought her to her knees. She'd call us in and let us skate around in our socks. We'd grow solemn as planets in an intricate orbit about her. She's bending over crimson cloth. The younger kids are long in bed. Late summer, cold enough for a fire. She works by fading light to remake an old dress for me. It's first day back at school tomorrow. Pure lamb's wool, plenty of wear in a jet. You know, I wore this when I went out with your da. I was supposed to be down in a friend's house. Your granddad caught us at the corner. He dragged me in by the hair. It was long as yours then. In front of the whole street, he called your da every name under the sun. Corner boy, lout. I needn't tell you what he called me. He shoved my whole head under the kitchen tap, took a scrubbing brush and carbolic soap, and in ice cold water, he scrubbed every spick of lipstick and mascara off my face. Christ, but he was a right tyrant, your granda. It'll be over my dead body. Anyone harms a hair of your head. She must have stayed up half the night to finish the dress. I found it airing at the fire, three new copybooks on the table and a bright bronze nib. St. Christopher strung on a silver wire as if I were embarking on a perilous journey to uncharted realms. I wore that dress with little grace. To me, it spelt poverty, the stigma of the second hand. I grew enough to pass it on by Christmas to the next in line. I was sizing up the world beyond our flat, patch by patch, daily after school, and fitting each surprising city street to city square to diamond. 
I'd watch the Liffey for hours pulsing to the sea and the coming and going of ships, certain that one day it would carry me to Zanzibar, Bombay, the land of the Ethiopes. There's a photo of her taken in the Phoenix Park, alone on a bench surrounded by roses, as if she had been born to formal gardens. She stares out as if unaware that any human hand held the camera, wrapped entirely in her own shadow, the world beyond her, already a dream, already lost. She's eight months pregnant, her last child. Her steel needle sparked and clacked, the only other sound, a settling coal, or her sporadic mutter at a hard part in the pattern. She favoured sensible shades, moss green, mustard, beige. I dreamt a robe of a colour so pure it became a word. Sometimes I'd have to kneel an hour before her by the fire, a skein around my outstretched hands while she rolled wool into balls. If I swam like a kite too high amongst the shadows on the ceiling or flew like a fish in the pools of pulsing light, she'd reel me firmly home. She'd land me at her knees tongues of flame in her dark eyes, she'd say, one of these days I must teach you to follow a pattern. I think that poem, you know, which I think is really just a wonderful piece of work, it shows something about poetry. You know, once a poem is written, it can never be unwritten. And once that space is made, where that thing is expressed, it's never going to be unexpressed. But, you know, finding and making the spaces, I think, wasn't easy. And I know it couldn't have been for you, and I certainly know when I was younger, there was resistance to women making the lives they lived the subject matter of the poems they wrote. And if you weren't going to do that, you know, you, you ran the risk of writing somebody else's poem and not your own. You know, I gave a lot of thought to that and I certainly wouldn't have had the words to think what was the city that I lived in. But I was very aware that the city, when I was a young poet, broke into two halves. And I know you would have found this, we went to Trinity College, when you came out, you know, you were in a sort of literary world. People sat around in pubs, talked about literature, talked about poetry. And then almost everybody considered the world that was beyond that, where people went home to their homes, raised their children, put dinner on the table, lived ordinary lives. Almost everybody implied that was anti-artistic was anti-intellectual, that, that you were never going to be a poet if you lived that life. And I think that, you know, the poem that Paula just read, the ideas of honoring that life and making poetry tell the story of that life, I think that was something that really was important over the last 20, 30 years. And I, I think it has happened. It is done. Poems, when they're written, can't be unwritten. 
So that was something that I was conscious of. And the Dublin that I lived in, I lived in Dundrum. I was surrounded by people who I thoroughly admired and the lives they were living, you know, just the people we all know since they were part of our families, our histories, our backgrounds, doing their best, raising their children, you know, doing that everywhere. And I really didn't want to live a life as a poet that somehow edited all that out. And so, you know, the poem here isn't so much that. There's a poem I wrote at that time. And I remember clearly the difficulty that poem gave me. And it wasn't actually that difficult. The poem's called The Pomegranate. But The Pomegranate is about the astonishment, which a lot of people in the room must have had, of having a child who is suddenly a teenager. I think that, you know, almost everybody recognizes that one. And there is, of course, a great, wonderful legend on it, you know, that Ceres has a child who's kidnapped, brought to the underworld, and she goes back to try to get the child back. And she tries to bargain with the king of the underworld to let the child come back. But in fact, she wouldn't have had to be down there at all if the child hadn't eaten something. If the child had eaten nothing, she'd have got her back free and clear. But everybody knows a teenager will eat something, so the child had eaten the pomegranate, and that was it. I remember standing with a wonderful first daughter, Sarah, thinking not how was I going to write the poem about a teenager, but she almost always had a can of Coke beside her bed, thinking, how would I ever get the can of Coke into the poem? You know what I mean? And it took me a long time to think. I don't think it was that big a deal in the end. But uh, for me, I didn't have any background in putting cans of Coke in poems. That isn't really what I'd learned to do. So this was the pomegranate and really just the idea that these deep roots could take place in this ordinary atmosphere was something important to me, the pomegranate. The only legend I have ever loved is the story of a daughter lost in hell and found and rescued there. Love and blackmail are the gist of it, Ceres and Persephone the names. And the best thing about the legend is I can enter it anywhere and have. As a child in exile in a city of fogs and strange consonants, I read it first. And at first I was an exiled child in the crackling dusk of the underworld, the stars blighted. Later, I walked out in a summer twilight searching for my daughter at bedtime. When she came running, I was ready to make any bargain to keep her. I carried her back past white beams and wasps and honey-scented buddleias, but I was serious then. And I knew winter was in store for every leaf on every tree on that road was inescapable for each one we passed and for me. It is winter and the stars are hidden. I climb the stairs and stand where I can see my child asleep beside her teen magazines, her can of Coke, her plate of uncut fruit, the pomegranate. How did I forget it? She could have come home and been safe and ended the story and all our heartbroken searching. But she reached out a hand and plucked a pomegranate. She put out her hand and pulled down the French sand for apple and the noise of stone and the proof that even in the place of death at the heart of legend, in the midst of rocks full of unshed tears, ready to be diamonds by the time the story was told, a child can be hungry.
I could warn her there is still a chance. The rain is cold, the road is flint-colored, the suburb has cars and cable television, the veiled stars are above ground. It is another world. But what else can a mother give her daughter but such beautiful rifts in time? If I defer the grief, I will diminish the gift. The legend will be hers as well as mine. She will enter it as I have. She will wake up. She will hold the papery, flushed skin in her hand and to her lips, and I will say nothing. Ivan, that's a very familiar move of yours, the re-inhabitation, if you like, of received legends, making them new, going back and living in them again. There's another fairly, I, I would consider it a characteristic gesture of yours, which is to take an object and by meditating on the object, especially on its process, that you come to some truth about sometimes human suffering, but sometimes the city as polis, you know, the city as city-state, where it's not just a city to be looked at, but it's also a series of processes in history to be examined. And I'm going to put you on the spot now to read and maybe talk about a little bit about the poem Making Money which I think was the most powerful and political poem of the boom, even though it was never really, I don't think, critically discussed that way in any of the, the various places where critical discussion takes place. <laughs> um, but it seemed to me a sly, and I know you, you claim not to be an ironist, but I mean, there are elements of irony working all the way through the work. You know, it's about making money. It's literally about making money in the mills outside Dublin, in Dundrum, where you live. It seemed to me to be the er poem of the boom, even though it's an historical poem. And this seems to me one of your characteristic gestures. I mean, you've also written about the English Industrial Revolution as well. Will you read that for us? Maybe speak a bit about how you came to make it, to yeah, make the it's poem itself. It's funny. Thank you, Paula, for the sort of... It's funny because I have a very sketchy memory of a book. Kevin, my husband, had it in the house. It was called Dundrum and Its Environs. Yes. And it was a small local history book, but I never sort of saw it again. I mean, I saw it one evening, and there was just this funny sentence in it. I mean, it was describing all kinds of things about Dundrum, which stuck in my mind. I mean, none of them adding up to anything sensible. For instance, Dundrum was a, a great producer of goat's milk, so that a lot of people came to, it to drink the goat's milk. None of that could be fitted into anything that I understood about it. But, but there was this sentence, it says, at the turn of the century, they were writing about Dundrum, the paper produced there was of such high quality that it was exported for use as banknote paper. And, you know, the, the photograph, it's of these cottages. They're a little bit further down from where we live. There are these low cottages on the bank of the Dodder River and the Slang, I think, there. And it's where the mills would have turned to make the paper. I knew that that mill work was terrible work. 
And the idea that these young women who I imagined I didn't have any record of the mill itself, there's no record that I could read, no document about the people who'd worked there. But the idea that these girls in these terrible conditions, really, and mill work was so... Um, dangerous. Dangerous and hard and bad for health, that they were producing this paper on which would be written the values of money they would never see or know or something about that. I think you're right, I'm not an ironist, but something about that seemed to me to have this really cruel smack of irony. So this is the poem, Making Money. They made money, maybe not the way you think it should be done, but they did it anyway. At the end of summer, the rains came and braided the river slang as it ran down and down the Dublin mountains and into faster water and stiller air as if a storm was coming in and the mill wheel turned so the mill could make paper and the paper money and the cottage doors opened and the women came out in the ugly first hour after dawn and began. To cook the rags, they put hemp waste, cotton lint, linen flax and fishnets from books, boxes delivered every day on the rag wagon on a roiling boil. And the steam rose up from the open coils where a shoal slipped through in an April dawn. And in the backwash, they added alkaline and caustic and soda ash, and suddenly they were making money. A hundred years ago, this is the way they came to the plum brown headlong weir and the sedge drowned in it and their faces about to be as they looked down once quickly on their way to the mill to the toil of sifting and beating and settling and fraying the weighed out fibers. And they see how easily the hemp has forgotten the Irish sea at neap tide and how smooth the weave is now in their hands. And they do not and they never will see the small boundaries all this will buy or the poisoned kingdom with its waterways and splintered locks, or the peacocks who will walk this paper up and down in the windless gardens of a history no one can stop happening now, nor the crimson and indigo features of the prince who will stare out from the surfaces they have made on the ruin of a Europe he cannot see from the surface of a wealth he cannot keep. If you can keep your composure, in the face of this final proof that the past is not made out of time, out of memory, out of irony, but is also a crime we cannot admit and will not atone. It will be dawn again in the rainy autumn of the year. The air will be a skin full of water, the distance between storms again. The wagon of rags will arrive, the foreman will buy it, the boxes will be lowered to the path, the women are walking up, as they always did, as they always will now, facing the paradox and learning to die of it. Great, thank you. Could I just ask you about the central poem? When, when we were looking to, do, to lay out the poem, myself and Jodie, 
One of the difficulties we had was that a straight chronology, like starting, we'll start with her first poems of the city and we'll work through to her last poems of the city. It just wouldn't work because so often you'd go into a time in your life and you would find that the poem written at that time was actually about an earlier phase. So the poems that enshrine memory could take us anywhere. Like the poems themselves were like small time capsules. So we early on abandoned just a simple chronology, one poem after the other. And we came up with a kind of a topography, really, as a way of organising it. We looked at the geography. So the book opens with the early poems of your earliest times in Dublin, uh, the family home and the leafy suburb, inner suburb, the canal, the life between the canal and the university as you got older. And then at the heart of the book, we put the river itself, the Liffey, that amazing long poem, Anna Liffey, which traces the idea of a river from its rising out on the plains of Kildare to the fact of its flowing into the sea. And the truth, the bald truth, that the city wouldn't be there were it not for the river. It's the river that both, as you say, narrates the city we finish then with the poems of your married life and your child-rearing family life out in Dundrum. And we finished with a magnificent poem, which was rereading Goldsmith in a changed Ireland. Um, that was the kind of arc through the life's work we took. And they're only the poems to do with the city. One of my regrets from being involved in editing with Jodie was that we couldn't really include the poems of the inner city, what I would call your inner city, those poems of the body, say, in the collection in her own image, poems about the, the woman's body itself and the processes. Um, but that comes in and out and is woven all the way through Anna Liffey itself, that poem, that central poem in the book. I know it's a long piece and it's in a goodly number of sections. Would you like to read that? No? I, I knew it! I knew it! I knew it. I Do you know, I have a... Oh, sorry, Paula. <laughs> anyway, uh, but, but, you know, the, the, you know Brenda Kennelly had a great resistance to hearing long poems. And if you were going to read anybody a long poem, he used to say to the person, bring a sandwich and a glass of milk. <laughs> I know, I know. And so I think maybe a bit long. This is something you say in the interview at the back of the book, which I really liked. You know, you're speaking about something, and it's something that is in your work. And I don't think it actually, I think it's a division between yourself and myself that I think is very interesting. You say in an answer, we're talking about Joyce. And you say, you say, I love Dubliners. To walk the named fictional streets and the real streets, as I was reading, and so many of the buildings extant before my eyes was really exciting. Quite apart from the characters, types easily translatable to the characters I saw around me. Joyce's North cityscapes themselves were intact if you squinted past Bazaar's Liberty Hall and didn't stray too far beyond Glasnevin. But there's a strange thing. I heard Ulysses first before I read it. One long winter with no money, no television, no phone, before mobiles or internet, it was read to me. So what else would you be doing? <laughs> the perfect virtual experience. What abundance now to remember. When I came to the text, I found it a hard read, harder to read than to listen to. Joyce must have heard them very clearly. The voices of the city is remembered city. So in some ways, the poems that you have built on the city, which is not true of myself, 
have been the voices of the city? Um, yes, I mean, that's, you're into the obsessive domain there. You know, the voices that won't let you rest, the kind of hauntings that come. Um, certainly in my work from the community I was privileged to grow up in, although I didn't realise till I went to school that I was from an underprivileged background. I remember too with O'Casey, you know, one of the criticisms I would have heard of O'Casey growing up was that um, his people, his characters are caricatures. And I remember a moment of revelation where I just realised that, of course, they're caricatures in, in some people's terms, but these were people who had nothing but their personalities. And they became an art in itself, you know, the presentation of self to the world. So I, my childhood was peopled by larger-than-life characters, storytellers, singers, deranged people, people who had come back from the war, the Great War, these old men rambling around the city with missing limbs, with, you know, the um, mustard gas, uh, dementia. Um, it was a very interesting city for those voices, and I do feel that, again, that obligation to somehow channel some of them. But I'm not letting you off the hook, Eva. <laughs> I know you're shying away. I mean, I just have to say it myself if you won't. Just a small section of it I just want to say, because this is the poem that speaks to me now at this age. And that has been one of your great gifts to me, is that you're just there ahead of me. And the work you do does open out space that I can follow, you know? There, I can follow the trails you make through what is wilderness. And one of the things you say is, in Analyphy, the central poem of this book, as we've edited and revised your life for you, largely done, I should say, on Skype, because Jodie Allen was either in New York or Santa Barbara through the editing the few times we got together in her place in Dublin or my place over in Baldoyle. The rest of the time it was edited on Skype, which was fascinating. You say, I am sure the body of an ageing woman is a memory, and to find a language for it is as hard as weeping and requiring these birds to cry out, as if they could recognise their element remembered and diminished in a single tear. An aging woman finds no shelter in language. She finds instead single words she once loved, such as summer and yellow and sexual and ready, have suddenly become dwellings for someone else, rooms and a roof under which someone else is welcome, not her. Tell me, Anna Liffey, spirit of water, spirit of place, how is it on this rainy autumn night as the Irish sea takes the names you made, the names you bestowed, and gives you back only wordlessness? Autumn rain is scattering and dripping from carports and clipped hedges. The gutters are full. When I came here, I had neither children nor country. 
The trees were arms, the hills were dreams. I was free to imagine a spirit in the blues and greens, the hills and fogs of a small city. My children were born. My country took hold of me. A vision in a brick house. Is it only love that makes a place? Is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> the burning question, is it only love that makes a place? I think that for many people, the place they understand best is the place that comes at the moment of intense living, intense life. And I certainly think that the city I understood best was not the city I found in its architecture. I mean, I was very interested there where you speak about I understood it, the big personalities that were in many ways the possession that people had, the selfhood they could proclaim. Many ways, I didn't find that. I think I found much more the silences in a city, the places where I really couldn't fit things in or build things into any recognizable pattern. But at the same time, I think when you live your life and you live it intensely, and of course I had a family and a husband and, and children that I, I really loved so much, that adventure connected me at last to a place. And I could see, you know, the river and the city in ways that I hadn't seen it, even though I was on the margin of that city. And the literary circles I would have known when I was young were extremely snooty about suburbs. They didn't regard them as you know, having any literary merit, either as subject or object. And, uh, and so in that way, you know, I had to discover things the way people always do, through the life they live. And through, you know, if you live your life intensely, you will solve the dilemma of a place. It, it will grow around you, you know, and in that way, I think I found it. But I, I would never say, you know, that, you know, when I when I read Joyce's great panorama of the city, I certainly, that hasn't been the city that I would have known, but it's the city I love to read in his work. What writers besides Joyce, were there writers that you, you read into and that they opened up room for you in either our own native... I know, I know that Adrienne Rich was a really important presence for you when you lived out in the suburbs first with your young family and you were looking to make a poem that you could live in and a poem that you could die in, as you say, elsewhere. What were those presences? Well, there were, and they were there in Irish poetry. I mean, I think Tom, Thomas Kinsler's work on the city was just remarkable. I mean, I don't like, I don't know whether you feel the same, but I don't like to find poetry in anthologies. You know, I, I make a real effort with it to get back to the individual book it came out of. You know, it's see like... the span. To, to see what happened in that book. Mm. It's like getting a piece of weather from the past. I mean, it's a, a weather system of its own, an individual book. And those books, Another September and Downstream, they were absolutely remarkable in their time and remarkable to me when he describes the garden, the snail, you know, when he says, you know, not young and not renewable, but man, the tree, he's shaving and he thinks of himself hacked clean for better bearing. You know, he's writing out of what appears to be a small compass, 
but is in fact a very big, powerful sense of self in an environment. And that made a big impression on me, and I'm not always sure that Thomas Kinsler gets all the credit he, he should, because he annotated Dublin in a certain way. And he demystified it, he brought it down, he took away some of the kind of dry ice, you know, from the sort of spectacle of Joyce and, and, Yeats. He, and Yeats, and even the canal poems, I think, and he made it this powerful, ordinary space that he was determined to commend to people. That was very important to me, and you know, I greatly respected and was moved by those particular books. And what about now when you come back? Because you come, you come back um, like a migrant bird. Do you foresee at all the future when you come back from Stanford to resettling here? Do you see well, any? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a colleague uh, in Stanford, a great friend of mine, Ken Fields, and he always says, you know, she likes to say that she just lives in Ireland and works in California, and to a certain extent it's true. You always live in the one place, you know, even though you don't. There's a beautiful poem by a, a German poet called Auslander where she says, you know, this is where I live and that's where I reside. And, and you know, I work at Stanford and it's a really wonderful environment, and above all, it's one of the great shelters for young poets in America through the Stegner Fellowship Program, and I teach in that and feel fortunate too. But, you know, I come home to Dublin every 10 weeks because it's a 10-week term, uh, it's a quarter system. And, you know, I, the roots I have are, are as an Irish poet. I think in our generation, we have a radar that is different from the poets who went before us, who didn't have those communications, who didn't see those barriers dissolving. But I still think the rootedness here is remarkable. And of course, this is where I will live and, and have lived and will continue to. And when I leave Stanford, we'll come straight back here. So it's not that, but I don't think, you know, when I was young as a poet, I don't think the people before me could have seen my future. And I don't think I could see the future of a young poet now. I don't think I would be able to. I, I don't know what, what life they're going to find. I don't know whether they will live the lives we lived as poets. It's what we were from the beginning. I don't know, is that going to be what people do in the future? I mean, are they, you know, a poet is what you are, it's not what you do. But is that always going to be the case? I suspect so, but you can't tell people how they're going to live their lives. No, but um, as you put it yourself in a poem, the rooms of other women poets, um, you have written yourself into a place where when the next generation look up, you're there, you are there. And I think that has been the great adventure of your life, that you have written yourself in from the edge into the centre. I think about that lovely blackbird poem on the edge of the holy book, you know, the scribe caught by the blackbird writes it in, puts it right there at the beginning in a way of our own secular tradition. 
And that, you know, just to make a pun on the margin moving to the centre, because we hear a lot about that in discussions of uh, women's poetry, that the margins have moved to the centre. So this lovely sense, though, that when they're in the future, that when people look up and look back into the tradition, we're there. I found that incredibly comforting until I realised through the work of scholars, especially feminist scholars, that in fact there have been plenty of times when we could have looked up and they would have been there if they hadn't been just written out and forgotten. It isn't that there wasn't always a volume and a critical mass of work by women, but it's just somewhere in the transmission between one generation and the next, it just seems to evaporate. I, I think it's not as easy to evaporate anymore. Okay. I mean, I agree with you. And uh, they used to say, I mean, some of these wonderful scholars, that it took... 80 years to write a woman out of history. And I, I don't know what happened in the 79 years, but certainly in our generation, women did go from being the objects of the poem to being the authors of the Irish poem. It's not going to change. Mm. And we have wonderful colleagues in Nula, Maeve, and Elaine, and you know, nobody's going to unwrite that. The movement from the margin to the center, I think, is a little more debatable that the centre seems to change frequently in the margins the of The centre cannot hold. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> On that excellent quotation, I think, Mere chaos is loosed on the world. Yeah, yeah. So listen, thank you very much for your attention tonight and um, enjoy the rest of the evening. And Ivan, thank you. And in that edition of Creatives in Conversation, we heard the late Ivan Boland in conversation with Paula Meehan in an event hosted by Poetry Ireland and the Peacock Theatre in 2014. If you'd like to hear the conversation in full, go to the website rte.ie slash drama on one. That event marked the publication of the book Ivan Boland, A Poet's Dublin, edited by Jodie Allen Randolph and Paula Meehan and published by Carcanet Press. Paula Meehan's new collection, The Solace of Artemis, will be published by Daedalus Press this November. Sound supervision was by Damien Chanel and the producer was Kevin Reynolds. rta.ie forward slash drama on one.